Welcome back to our series of stories in Genesis. Uh, in our last lesson, you got we changed it up a little bit since the church was closed for Snowmageddon 2022 here at Crossings. Uh, we did give you a lesson on Cain and Abel. It just wasn't exactly the one I was going to present. So hopefully it was good if you, if you got to watch that. Well, in this lesson, we are going to continue and move on from Cain and Abel, and we're just literally following the biblical text through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and hitting the highlights of the stories. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for the privilege of studying your word and I pray that you will open our eyes and our minds and our hearts that we might ingest these ideas. I pray that you would engage our minds. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts to see your truth in a deeper way. And I pray that you would engage our hands that we might put these things into practice. We're grateful for our nation where we have the freedom to gather. We pray for our leaders that you would turn their hearts toward you. We pray for a world in which peace is elusive and pray, Lord, that you would guide us toward peace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's the number for questions during class. So whether you're watching online or here, feel free to text questions in during class and we'll answer as many as we can. Well, let me tell you where we've kind of come from. So we start in Genesis one and two with the creation of the universe. And one of the key lessons was God is an involved creator. God creates order out of chaos and he brings content or fruitfulness or uh, something positive out of nothingness. That is essentially what the story of creation is about. Now you can go on into a lot of details, but whatever your opinion about creation is, how long it took, when it happened, etc., we can discuss those things, but there's one thing that's for sure, and that is that God created order. He ordered the universe. He creates life in an ordered way, male and female with a purpose, with a plan, they have work to do in the garden. And God continues to be engaged with the people he created and the creation. And there are powerful lessons in that for us. God is not an absentee landlord, if you will. You know, he's not a slumlord who, you know, he's living high and mighty up in heaven and here we are down here. God is personally involved. And of course, you see that most clearly in the incarnation of Christ and the cross and the resurrection. But it ties directly to Genesis one and two. Well, after the creation of humanity, you remember you have the fall of humanity. The will that we have being created in God's image, many people think one element of that is the, the ability to be a moral creature. In other words, to make moral choices. Lions and tigers and bears and bunny rabbits don't make moral choices. You'd say, oh my goodness, I think it's so immoral that that, I was watching the you know, TV show on National Geographic and the lion killed the deer. It's like, yes, they did, and that's unfortunate. But it is not a moral choice. It's what lions do. And they don't really experience a sense of choice in doing it, right? We, however, do experience a sense of choice. So we are moral beings. And in that capacity, Adam and Eve chose to cross the boundary that God had put in place. That's what we call sin or rebellion. And so you see the fall of humanity and God curses the ground. He curses Satan. And he says to Adam and Eve, you must leave the garden. You've corrupted the order of the universe, and yet God still cares for them. So Adam and Eve begin to work the soil, they begin to live, they have a son Abel, they have a son Cain, and you know the story that Cain rises up out of jealousy and kills his brother Abel. That was our last lesson, and from that point on, Cain turns to God and God holds him to account for it. And he says, Cain, you will be an exile and a wanderer. You'll have to leave this, this place. And Cain says, this is too much for me to bear. He says, everywhere I go, I'm gonna be a fugitive and people will kill me. And God says, not so. He said, he placed a mark on Cain 
and everyone would know to leave him alone. And so he sent him out east of Eden into the land of Nod, and that Hebrew word just means the land of wandering. And so there's a metaphor there for fallen humanity is there's a lot of ways in which we are wandering. Uh, we are restless. We haven't found a home. We are disordered, if you want to use that word. It's kind of a popular word right now, but it's a good word. We are disordered beings living in a disordered world because of the moral choices that we are making vis-a-vis -vis God. So we live in a world largely of our own making, and we don't like it. So Cain goes, and it, and the tail end of chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel, is the descendants of Cain. And so Cain goes off, he begins to have children and grandchildren, etc., and they begin to build cities. And they begin, uh, and they get a lineage of conquest and power and building. Then in chapter five, we turn from Cain and back to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve have another son, and his name is Seth. And according to legend, Seth is the righteous version of the unrighteous Cain. And Seth, throughout all of history amongst the Jews, understood Seth to be the opposite, if you will, of what Cain is, that he was a faithful son, and he was faithful to God. And so the rest of chapter five gives you the descendants of Adam and Eve to Seth on down through the lineage. And at the very end of chapter five, through the descendants of Seth, remember Cain and all his descendants are, are living their lives at the same time, you get to a man named Noah. And Noah is the focus of the story in chapter six. Chapter six, is kind of the apex of another crisis point in the time of humanity. And so from the time of Cain and his descendants and the time of Seth leading down to Noah, what you see happening in the world is humanity spirals downward. You'll read this same thing in the New Testament in Romans chapter one. You see the rebellion of humanity, sin enters the world, and the inevitable result of sin is this downward spiral of more violence, more oppression, more self-centeredness, more accumulation of power. And so humanity unchecked becomes a very ugly thing. Noah is a second Adam figure. I want you to just think about these themes as we go through this. But Noah is a second Adam figure in the sense that God is going to judge the, the inhabitants of the earth and he is going to cleanse the earth with water. Hold that thought because in the New Testament and all through the history of the Jews, spiritual cleansing was symbolized by water, by baptism. Jews were baptized, meaning that they went underwater to cleanse themselves before worshiping God. Christians, baptism is a sign of uh, rebirth, new birth. Well, if you wanna think about it this way, God's gonna baptize the whole earth and he's going to have a new start. And so Noah becomes a kind of a second Adam figure, a bit of a hope. God's gonna make a covenant with Noah, which previews up until this time, there's not been really a covenant of rules and it previews Abraham, who's gonna come later, and Moses, who will come even later. So with Noah, you see the beginning of a covenantal relationship with God. And then finally, a theme that runs all through the Bible is the idea of a remnant. No matter how bad things get, no matter how many unfaithful people there are, over and over and over through the scriptures, there's always a certain number of people that have been faithful to God. And from that small number, God is able to do great things. And as you read through the Old Testament, read through the New Testament, you'll see this idea of a remnant, a remaining group of people who are faithful to God. And so with Noah, you begin to see the beginning, if you will, of a lot of these themes. Now, this is not the only flood story. 
Uh, and I wanna talk about this specifically because I wanna rebut something that you're gonna hear a lot like on the History Channel, et cetera. There are flood stories in many ancient civilizations. I'm gonna give you one of the oldest. The Gilgamesh epic, probably composed around middle of the second millennium, maybe 14, 1500 BC. And so the Gilgamesh epic is a story and I've quoted some of the creation parts of that story, but then it goes on a little bit. And so after the gods create the world and they create humans, basically what happens is humans populate the earth. Well, that's a lot like Genesis as you get people populated, but instead of the flood coming because of their immorality and their breaking of their relationship with God, they just get to be too noisy. And so in the Gilgamesh epic, the gods get mad at human beings for making so much noise after curfew. And so a guy named Utnapishtim builds a boat to save humanity from the wrath of the gods. And it's different than the Noah flood story, but it is a flood story. I mean, it's, when you read it, it sounds really mythical feeling but there is a flood story and there are other flood stories. And the reason I wanna tell you this is when you watch a lot of the shows on TV, they're going to say something like this. They're going to say, well, you know, the Bible's flood story is just another flood story. It's certainly not evidence that the Bible is true, nor is it evidence that what the Bible says about a flood is true. Okay, well, I wanna disagree with that, and I just wanna to appeal to your common sense. You, only a scholar could misunderstand this. All right, so think about this. If there is a flood story in so many ancient civilizations, don't you think that at least that would indicate that there was some kind of water leak at some point in history? I mean, think about this. What are the odds that all of these different cultures come up with their own flood story, just, man, what a coincidence, right? No, my point to you is the fact that there are so many flood stories in ancient history actually is evidence there was a flood. Now, I'm not contending that it's evidence that everything that's in the Bible is true. That's not my point here. I simply don't want you to watch those things and hear silly things like that being said. Because actually the fact that there are, are uh, these stories in all these civilizations is really pretty conclusive proof that some kind of flood event actually happened. And here's how it works with, with all kinds of mythology. The way mythology gets developed is something actually happens. There's a flood. And then people try to make sense of what does this mean and why did this happen? And naturally, different cultures come up with different answers. Well, the Babylonians said, well, we already have a creation story of how we got here. and We got these really weird, capricious gods. Maybe we just were making too much noise and they decided to wipe humanity out. I mean, that's how myths get developed. I'm being a little facetious, but you get the idea. That's how myths get developed. And another culture says, well, we've got our own ideas about this, so how are we gonna explain the flood? That's how you get these different stories. So the one thing that you can be certain of because of all these flood stories is there was a flood of some kind in ancient history before about 2000 BC. That makes sense? So the existence of other flood stories is actually a corroborating element. So let's go to uh, the tail end of Genesis 5. You find that we get to Noah. When Lamech, we've gone through Seth all the way down through the generations. Lamech lived 182 years. He fathered the son and called his name Noah, Noah. Out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. So when Noah was born, the hope was that somehow the curse, the fallenness of humanity, I'm, all these are synonyms, the alienation from God, all the elements of the fall could somehow be undone. And so very early in history, you see the longing of humanity to get back to the garden 
to reconcile with God. And the hope was that Noah would be the one to do it. Now, there's a little event tucked in here. So right at the end of chapter five, you have Noah. You start chapter six, and in verse five of chapter six, we continue with Noah. But there are four little verses tucked in the beginning of chapter six that I have been asked specifically to do a little detour on these verses. So bear with me. Hold on, hold that thought about Noah. Okay, we're gonna come back to Noah because the next thing the Bible talks about is a really cryptic little four verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So in this time, this era of Noah where uh, you got Cain and all his descendants, you got Seth and all his descendants and you got people multiplying around the world. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, or then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, this is one of the most cryptic little passages in the Bible, so we're just gonna do a detour and talk about the Nephilim. The word Nephilim is transliterated, it's not translated here. If you have a King James, it probably says giants. So, uh, first question though is, who are the sons of God? The sons of God, that little phrase is not used very much in the Bible. And so there are different ideas about who are the sons of God. Now, first of all, take off your 21st century engineering hats, real literalist kind of hats, because the sons of God, that phrase didn't mean the literal children of God. It, it's not like Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's true. This phrase gets used for other reasons. And so it's used in three ways. No one knows exactly. This is a cryptic little passage, but it's really interesting to talk about. So first of all, what are the sons of God? Idea number one, these are angels. And as you will see in a minute, this particular group of angels are bad angels. They are fallen angels. But the sons of God is used also in Job chapter one, verse six, when it says, and the sons of God came before God and Satan was with them. He was one of them. So that's why a lot of people think when he says the sons of God, it's talking about these created beings, these angels. And because they're about to misbehave, we're talking about the fallen angels, Satan and his buddies. Second idea is that the idea of the sons of God are talking about uh, the mighty, uh, faithful descendants of Seth, as opposed to the descendants of Cain. Remember, Seth and Cain are brothers. Cain's older, he's cast out, Adam and Eve have Seth. And so Seth has faithful, uh, faithful to God, Cain's descendants are not. And so some think the sons of God are those the godly sons, think of it that way. So Seth's descendants. And then one final idea that's been persistent throughout time, I'm talking about through centuries, is the idea of the sons of God are basically kings on the earth who have a lot of power. So there are different ideas of what the sons of God are, and I'm going to kind of go with the what I think is a broadly Jewish over time, that the way the Jews understood this as the angels and as fallen angels. Second question is, who are the Nephilim? Well, that, that word is difficult to know where it comes from, but that root in Hebrew, I mean, so what does it mean? I mean, it's Nephilim, but what does it mean? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. The, the King James Version translates it as giants and understands the Nephilim as the descendants of angels and human women 
And so you have these large people, you know, like Goliath. And, uh, and one of the reasons people think this is over in Numbers chapter 13. Now we fast forwarded many hundreds of years, but in Numbers chapter 13, when the Israelites have left Egypt, Moses brought them out of Egypt, Yul Brynner's still there crying. And so they come out of Egypt, they're about to go into the promised land, they send some scouts there, and the scouts come back and said, oh, these guys are big. I don't think we can take them. And in fact, they're like the Nephilim giants. They're big, they're big guys, right? Not definitive, but one of the ideas, reasons that you tend to think of the Nephilim as being the offspring and that they're big, they're giants, they're larger than average. And so we'll kind of go with that for the time being. There are other ideas, but basically it seems that there is a transgression happening here. I mean, that's the one thing, no matter what you think the Nephilim are, no matter what you think the sons of gods are, what is about to happen here is more disordering, right? So the rebellion is breaking the order of the way God has created things. Eat of all the trees you want, just don't eat of this tree right here. Well, we're gonna transgress that boundary, right? We're gonna disorder the world. Well, now you're cast out and all of creation is fallen. So now we have more boundaries being crossed. We're gonna take spiritual beings, angels, and terrestrial beings, humans, and mix this. Do you see what's happening here is yet more sin, yet more rebellion, yet more crossing of the boundaries, which is not a bad way to think of sin, by the way. And so, just to take that forward a little bit, I'm gonna uh, talk to you a little bit about how the Jews understood, and Christians too, understood this. One of the ideas comes from, I'm gonna quote a book that is not in your Bible. So the first and second books of Enoch develop what the Jews thought about this happening. These books are not inspired. They were not written under the guidance of God. These are kind of like Max Lucado books, you know, about that somebody wrote saying, hey, you know those Nephilim? I think I know what's going on. I think we got a bad batch of angels here. And they just start writing about it. It's not necessarily true but what's useful is it tells you what the Jews thought about this passage and early church Christians also thought this way about this passage. So it's really clear, this is in 2 Enoch. Oh, by the way, why is it called Enoch? Well, the one thing you know is it's not written by Enoch, but who is Enoch? So you, you may know this, but this is kind of interesting too. If you're gonna write a forged paper, this is a good idea. So you got Seth and he's got all these descendants and all the way down to Noah, right? These are the good guys. Well, you get to this one guy, Enoch, and it says Enoch walked with God, which is a way of saying Enoch was really a godly man. He was faithful, he followed God. And it says Enoch didn't die. God took him without him dying. Only a couple people in the Bible that that's ever happened to. So you're thinking, oh, this Enoch's a good guy. So this is called Enoch because theoretically, this is what Enoch learned when God took him and he went on a tour of heaven. Oh, and even went on a tour of hell. And that's what the books of first, second, and third and fourth Enoch are about, is it's fiction, but it gives us an insight into what the Jews thought. They said one of the order of archangels, ruling angels, his name, Satan is not a name, it's a title. Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser, deviated together with the division, the angels that were under his authority. He thought up the impossible idea that he might place his throne higher than the clouds which are above the earth and he might become equal to God's power. Well, that's common understanding is that Satan, through the sin of pride, said, I wanna be God, not you, and he's cast out of heaven for his rebellion. And so you get Satan and his angels cast out of the heavenly realms. First Enoch then ties into this idea about the Nephilim and says this, in those days when the children of man had multiplied, so this is the Jewish people 
right before the time of Jesus, this is written not long before Jesus is born. This is how they understood Genesis chapter six. When the children of man had multiplied, it happened that there were born to them handsome and beautiful daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, specifically these cast out angels who are roaming around on the earth looking for mischief, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, come let us choose wives for ourselves from among the daughters of man and beget children. And they took wives for themselves and everyone chose for himself one and they each began to go into them and were promiscuous with them and they taught them charms and spells and showed to them the cutting of roots and trees and the women became pregnant and bore great giants whose heights were 300 cubits. Little, uh, little exaggeration there. But you can see that through the centuries, the Jews understood this passage as these are fallen angels, the sons of God, and they've transgressed God's boundary and come into the women of men. And the Nephilim then are indeed the offspring and they are mightier and they are evil. They are power hungry. The mighty men of renown is not a good, is not a good title. It's like they conquered and they oppressed and they killed. And so you get the kingdoms, well, pretty much what's going on right now, right? Is you get conquest and oppression and that sort of thing. And so as it's not enough for humans themselves to sin. Now you also have the angels joining in the sin. And it's not enough for the angels to continue to transgress, but they begin to teach human beings. When it says talking about charms and spells and the cutting of roots, uh, magic. And I'm not talking about real magic. I'm not talking Harry Potter here. I'm talking about, you know, astrology and spiritual kinds of ideas. In other words, taking them further and further away from God. Book of Enoch's interesting because it gets very specific. I'm just giving you some excerpts. Uh, it starts to name some of those fallen angels besides Satan. Azazel, really bad guy. You go into the post office, you're going to see a wanted poster for Azazel. Azazel was an angel that taught people the art of making swords and knives and shields and breastplates. In other words, the idea of a warmonger, if you will. Amasras taught incantations. And Amaras, the resolving of incantations. And Barakal, astrology. And Kochabel, the knowledge of signs, etc., etc. And then in heaven, you have the other archangels, the obedient ones, Michael, Shurafel, and Gabriel, we know Michael and Gabriel from the scriptures. The others we do not know. I mean, these are not necessarily true. This isn't inspired. But Michael and Gabriel do appear in the scriptures. And they observed carefully from the heavens and they saw much blood being shed upon the earth. And so this is the Jewish understanding of this era of Noah, that it's really a fallen time, a time of oppression, but it's also a time of corruption even amongst the angels to fall and then corrupt humanity. And you really start to get this, uh, this idea right before the flood of just how absolutely depraved humanity has become. So let me go through history just a little bit more because I really want you to see that Jews and, and following it, Christians also thought this. And this is the book of Jubilees. Book of Jubilees, is also not inspired. It pretends to be secret stuff that God told Moses. But it says this, and he wrote everything and bore witness to the watchers, the ones who sinned with the daughters of men. So the watchers is a term that shows up in the book of Jubilees and it's talking about these angels that were fallen and transgressed God's boundary and sinned with the daughters of men. Because they began to mingle themselves with the daughters of men that they might be polluted. This idea of mixing and mingling, the idea of crossing boundaries, just kind of time out. Fast forward to the law of Moses and eating kosher and ritual cleanliness. The law of Moses is reflecting, I'm, I'm jumping around here, but I wanna explain why the law of Moses is the way it is. For example, in the law of Moses, it's not kosher to have meat and dairy. So no cheeseburgers. And you have clean animals and unclean animals. Really, seriously, is there something all that wrong with pulled pork? I don't think so, but that's not why it's there. The point is, is there are divisions. There is an ordering, if you will. And so 
in the law of Moses, God puts these parameters and it's just like being in the Garden of Eden again. It's training our obedience and our faithfulness to God. If you ask the rabbis why some of the laws that are in the law of Moses are there, I know that a lot of times Christians wanna say, oh, it's there because of hygiene. You know, like, no, it's just not, okay? It's there, it might be hygienic, but it's there to order the world and help us to understand obedience. It's like you with your toddler. You have rules, you have boundaries. Why? Because you're trying to train your toddler to have a little self-discipline, to trust you when you say, do not touch the stove when it's hot. I told you, you know. And so you're trying to train your toddler to trust you, to have some obedience, to have some self-discipline. That's what the law of Moses is doing. That's what the garden was doing. God has an order, not because God is a neat freak, but because God is trying to train us and trying to help us grow in our faith. The ability to make a choice to disobey also means the ability to make a choice to obey. The ability to sin means also the ability to love. And so that's what God is doing with us. So you see this in Jubilees, this idea of what's happening here is crossing boundaries and disordering uh, disobeying God. That term, the watchers, if you just go out on your favorite internet search engine and search the watchers, you will get into conspiracy theories that will take you far, far down the rabbit hole. Okay, so don't. But bottom line is you get this mythology around the watchers, the, the uh, angels. Then finally, Josephus. Josephus is a historian that lived uh, just a little bit after Jesus, in the first century AD. So I wanted you to see the enduring idea here. For many angels of God had consorted with women and brought forth wanton children, children who were disdainful of all good because of their confidence in brute strength. So the Jews of that time, of Jesus' time, also read Genesis chapter six as this mingling of the spiritual beings with the terrestrial beings, and again, even more disobedience from God, okay? So I'll pause there for a minute because I'm kind of at the end of that little digression, but that's an interesting thing, and you, you might be tempted to say, why is that even there? Well, that's a good question, but I think one of the reasons is, is it tells you it's not just humanity being mean to humans, but everything is breaking down. You have mass rebellion. Sin never stays in one spot. It always metastasizes. And so by the time you get to Genesis 6 verse 4, you not only have the humans behaving badly, you've got the angels behaving badly. And you, you really have just a depraved humanity. Okay, question. How do you categorize the Enoch, Jubilee, et cetera, books that you've been discussing? And since they're not inspired, are they just considered history books? Good question. So Enoch is called, it's part of, a, if you wanna read this, you can look for a collection, big collection, called pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha is just a word that means false writings. And that is that somebody wrote this and put Enoch's name on it and everybody knows Enoch didn't write it. That's called pseudepigrapha. And so these are writings that they wanted to popularize at the time. And then things like jubilees are a little bit more legit than that, but they're all fictional writings that are not inspired, but they are useful as an insight into what the Jews of the time thought about the scriptures. Does not mean they're right about the scriptures. So those are considered pseudepigrapha, they're considered uh, just other writings. They can be historical, for example, the books of Maccabees were written in around this time frame and they record, now they may or may not accurately record, but they record historical events in 167 BC that happened to the Jews. So yes, some of them are history, some of them are prophecy. And when I say prophecy, I mean they're pretending to tell you what God wants you to do. Some of them are apocalyptic. That Enoch is apocalyptic literature, meaning visions of what heaven might be and what the angels did. So they may or may not be accurate, but it's just a body of literature outside the Bible 
that is only useful for giving you a little bit of an insight into what they thought. It does not tell you that they were right about it. Good question. How many generations between Cain and Noah? Uh, well, you'll have to count them up. I wanna say there are 10. However, I wanna say one thing about genealogies. Uh, and you can just pick up your Bible and feel free to count those. Okay, so, but I, the point is, a lot of genealogies are stylized in the sense that you aren't necessarily, not everybody makes the family tree. You see what I'm saying? Is a lot of times, instead of getting everybody, because you got a lot of brothers and you only mentioned one, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, you know? Well, that's nice, but he also begat 10 other little brats running around, you know, but they don't make it, right? And then you might skip to a grandson it's not unusual in Jewish literature to do it. And you know how they decide that? They like to have numbers. If you, they like to have just nice round numbers. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, by the way, you'll see 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Just go count it up in, in Matthew and Luke and you'll see what I mean. And you think to yourself, are seriously, is, is it just 14? Probably not. It was stylized. And when I say stylized, I don't mean it's wrong. I just mean they pick only certain people. So it's probably impossible to know for sure. But I believe there are 10 there. If I'm wrong, count it, email me, tell me, Terry, you were wrong. Okay, you made a statement. I think it was right at the end of talking about the flood stories, about this doesn't mean that all these things are true taken to mean you don't claim everything in the Bible is true. Would you like to clarify that? Yes, thank you for the opportunity to clarify that because I sometimes get a little ahead of myself. Here's, here's what's going through my head when I said that and I believe the context of it, but obviously I wasn't clear. What I'm saying is the fact that there are all these flood stories tells you, you can be pretty sure, objectively speaking, there was a flood. The fact that there are a lot of flood stories doesn't mean that the biblical account is true. It just tells you there was a flood. Fair enough? I and you think, yes, in fact, the biblical account is exactly true. I'm just saying that evidence can only get you so far, which is fine. So if you aren't a Christian, let me put it this way, if you don't know the Bible and you're not a Christian, you still have to agree there was a flood. The secular evidence would say, how did you get flood stories in all these cultures if there wasn't a flood? So even if you're not a Christian, you believe there's a flood. Now, if you're not a Christian, you don't necessarily believe everything else the Bible says about the flood is true. Well, fair enough, but I do and you do. I'm simply saying that you can, whether you're a Christian or not, there was a flood. And so when you watch the History Channel or whatever and they say, well, it probably wasn't a flood, that is a very bad statement. That's not logical. If they wanna say, we don't believe in Noah, fair enough. Nobody makes you believe in the Bible, but I do, yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay, on to the Nephilim. Is it possible that the Nephilim were Satan's attempt to corrupt the lineage for the Savior, requiring God to eliminate it? So, the the. I think what that's asking is the angels mixing with humans is, hence the Nephilim as the offspring of that, is this an attempt of Satan to get in the way of the Savior? This is an opinion question, just because the text doesn't say, there's no real direct logic. I think not. I think the devil's up to mischief. I think the questioner's really got a good point there. The devil is up to mischief. I don't think the devil knows about the plan of redemption. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. In the New Testament, it talks about we've seen things with the Christ and to die on a cross. Nobody saw that coming. And to be resurrected, Satan didn't see that coming. Nobody saw that coming. It talks about we've seen things that even the angels long to understand. In other words, Nobody understood how God was gonna redeem humanity. In fact, everybody thought they were gonna do it through a Messiah who was a conquering king, right? That's what the Jews thought. 
but instead he's a suffering servant. Dies, is raised again, and will come again as the conquering king. Satan never saw that coming. And so I don't think at this point Satan, I think Satan's just trying to cause trouble. I wouldn't see any evidence that he, he knows what God's plan is. In fact, I'd see evidence in the Bible that Satan's not sure what God's plan is. He's reading the Bible as it's being written. He's, he doesn't know any more than that. But good question. Could the Nephilim and the men of renown be the foundation of Greek and Roman mythology? That's a very good question. So one other way to, I didn't tell you. Okay, so I'll make this real short for whoever's really interested. One other way to understand the Nephilim is in the context of ancient Near Eastern God structures. And so you have basically divine beings mating with humans and you get what are called demigods, part divine, part human. Okay, this is not biblical, I don't believe this is true, but this is what some scholars think and that the, this is based on the idea of certain level of divine gods, demigods. Well, now that I've mentioned the word demigods, you gotta think Greek and Roman mythology because you got like Hercules and Achilles and all those guys that are demigods. So yes, some scholars see in Greek and Roman mythology a tie back to this ancient Near Eastern mythology. So we'll just stop there. But yes, that's an interesting question. Who did Cain and Abel marry? Were they their sisters? Who did Cain and Abel marry? Uh, that's a good question. Where did all these people come from? Okay, well, the text doesn't say. Fair enough. So it's one of those things that the Bible just doesn't think is important enough to talk about. Now you and I go, why not God? We think it is and God's like, yeah, appreciate that. But you know, I got some serious stuff I wanna talk about here. So in all seriousness, the text doesn't say. So you're left to speculate. And so anything about this would be speculation. One obvious speculation would be, you've got Seth and Cain and the descendants and you have the potential for sisters being married. Some people think that there are other people involved here that aren't mentioned. In other words, we're kind of assuming that the Bible is telling us everything that happened. The Bible doesn't pretend to be telling you everything that happened. Now again, I already have one strike against me that you think I don't believe in Noah. I do, this is true. I'm not saying the Bible isn't true, I'm just saying Nowhere does it say that God told you everything that there is to be told in six chapters. I mean, think about it. We went from the creation of the world to Noah in six chapters. So there clearly are things happening that just aren't recorded here. So one idea is there are other people here that we don't know about. It just hasn't, God hasn't told us that. The other idea is that they're sisters. And then there's all kinds of weirder speculation. I mean, just a little more speculative, but those are two good ideas. Great questions. Okay, I feel like I barely survived the Nephilim, but I did want you to know what people understood this is. It's really interesting, but there's a lot of speculative stuff in this. The one thing that I think you can distill from this that's not speculative is if, for, if nothing else comes out of this, you definitely get the idea of this downward spiral. Right? And so by this time, you have humanity that is really depraved. And that's where verse five picks up. And it picks up on that idea. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, this is damning. I mean, this is really that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. In other words, that our self-centeredness leads to an obsession with with evil, oppressing people, uh, violence toward people. And you look around our world and you say, there's a lot of evil in our world. And that's what God is saying about fallen humanity is left to our own devices. We tend to go downhill, not uphill. Contrary, by the way, to those who believe that humans are perfectible and that we are getting better through time. There is a view of history, it's not a Christian view of history, that you know, we had ignorant people in the Middle Ages. Then we had the Enlightenment and we all got really smart. 
And then we had science and we invented the atomic bomb and killed a bunch of people. Oh, sorry, they don't usually mention that. But bottom line, we get really smart, really smart, really smart. And we as humans are being perfected. We're getting better and better. That's not what you see happening, I would argue, you don't see it historically. Look at the 20th century and explain to me how millions and millions and millions of people being murdered means we're getting better than these guys, right? But the biblical account is, is that fallen humanity tends to deteriorate. And God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I want you to hold that thought. It grieved God. So the Lord God said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, typically meaning faithful. He believed in God. He wanted to have a relationship with God. He wanted to do what was God honoring. He was blameless in this generation and Noah walked with God. Noah was faithful to God. And so what God does is he says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and it was corrupt for all flesh had been corrupted. Again, you see this idea of crossing boundaries. You see this idea of disobedience. I mean, the idea of something being corrupted means there was originally an, an uncorrupt purpose, right? And so you have a plan that God has made. You have a way that God has built us to treat one another. I think it's wired into our hearts. You have to override your wiring to kill another human being. I mean, you have to, there's a sense in which we inside have to sear our consciences to do the things that are, that are happening here. So we have been corrupted. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence. And so make an ark. I'm gonna bring flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish a covenant. A covenant is a contract but it's more than a contract. Think about marriage. Marriage is in some sense a contract. Uh, it's, a com it's a commitment. You know, do you promise to do this? Okay, well, do you promise to do that? No, I don't. You know, bottom line, you've got the idea of, of a contract, but you have more. You have commitment. And so covenant is more than just a contract. It's a relationship. And so what God is saying is, I want to start mending the relationship and I'm gonna do it through the mechanism of a covenant, of a contract. And I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about God as a grieving parent rather than a wrathful tyrant. The idea that it grieves God's heart that we have made these choices. Any parent in here can understand that. It grieves your heart when your children make choices that are very bad for them or very bad for others and you will do anything in your power to reconcile it. You won't do anything in your power to enable it. I mean, I know that we do at times, but we know that doesn't help. And God as being the perfect parent says, I know what you need. You need a covenant. You need a little discipline to build some self-discipline. We need to build some trust. You need to learn to obey. And so he does this through the framework of a covenant. The way I'd like you to think about this, it's a metaphor, it's not perfect, but I'd like you to think about that God comes onto the scene and you have this beautiful little baby. Three years later, this beautiful little baby is turned into a little sinner that's running around your house, right? A little three-year-old. And you decide, where did the little baby go? You know, where did the beautiful little well-behaved little baby go? I need to, obviously, I need to work on this situation. I cannot let this kid turn 18 and act like this, right? So what do you do? You begin to, you don't think of it this way, but you covenant with that child. You pour yourself into that child and you begin to have what I call toddler rules. You begin to help this toddler. You start small and then over time you get bigger because you have rules, you have a contract, you have discipline, you have rewards, and you bring this toddler along, hopefully by the time they're 18, 
all of this discipline and trust and relationship has soaked into the heart, not just the behavior. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is what God is embarking on. He has got the world's worst three-year-old called humanity. And he has decided, I love you enough that I am going to raise you to the point where we can be reconciled. And that process ends at the cross where we are completely reconciled to God. But with Noah, he says, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And so Noah builds an ark, that's it. No, it's not it, it's a replica. But uh, Noah builds an ark and the story goes on, you know, it rains for 40 days and then 150 days they're floating around and then they come to land on Mount Ararat. And so it's thought to be here in Turkey and there are people that think they found pieces of the ark on Mount Ararat, which you're not allowed to go. This would be another one of those wormholes that you can go down, right? And a lot of speculation, but the Bible is true. It lands on a mountain, and after a period of time, the land dries up and God hits the reset button. And he makes this covenant with Noah and his sons. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where did you hear that? Adam and Eve. This is a restart. He says, but this is a little different. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. It wasn't that way originally, was it? He said to them, be fruitful and multiply the earth and everything here you have dominion over. There was harmony. This is fallen world. There's not harmony anymore. There's dominion, but there's not harmony. In other words, fear is what drives, drives the world at this point. And yet God gives them dominion so that they will be fruitful. But he begins to give them some contractual, some toddler rules, if you will. He said, everything that lives should be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, the blood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will acquire a reckoning. In other words, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Murder is not okay. Goes on and says to Noah and his sons, behold, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your offspring after you, which means this covenant is understood as being made with us as well. The Jews understood that the Mosaic covenant, the covenant, the 613 commandments of Moses, which is gonna happen later, was just with the Jews. That's why if you, in those days, non-Jews were not expected to keep the law of Moses. Every human being since Noah is expected to keep this covenant. And God said, I will establish my covenant with you and never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters. And this is a sign of the covenant that I make with you. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And so a rainbow, it's called a rainbow because of this. And he set his bow in the clouds to be assigned to all humanity of all time that these are the toddler rules. In other words, I am your father, you are my children, you are very disobedient children, but if you will be faithful to me, I will reconcile you. In other words, you will grow up to be who you were intended to be. And so I just thought this uh, would be interesting to give you what the Jews understood as they read this text. What is the Noahide covenant? or the covenant he made with Noah that applies to everybody. So Jews of Jesus' time said, we Jews have to keep 613 rules plus a whole bunch more of the oral law, but all of you non-Jews, Gentiles, you have to keep these seven rules. And in fact, in Acts chapter 15, this is just for those of you that are interested in this, in Acts chapter 15, when you see the Christians who used to be Jews and the Christians who used to be Gentiles and they were arguing, this shows up in settling that dispute. So they understood that it was required to be just, to do justice, that you refrain from blasphemy, in other words, honor God, you refrain from idolatry, you don't worship anything but God, you refrain from sexual immorality, God made man and woman, that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, etc., and refrain from murder, Refrain from robbery, taking something that isn't yours, and do not eat meat with the blood 
still in it. I know it sounds a little weird, but that's, those were the seven commands that uh, the, no, the covenant with Noah, and it's real small, isn't it? I mean, Moses, 613 commands, Noah, seven. It's like you're training humanity, and God, in his forbearance and in his love for us, begins to train humanity up. And so I want you to, the reason I'm telling you this story in this way is, I want you to see some biblical themes, but I also want you to see Jesus Christ in every bit of this. Everything that's happening here is going toward Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end of this plan. Without Jesus, there is no plan. Now, Satan doesn't know that's the plan. All Satan knows is, oh my gosh, God is just trying to rehabilitate these people. No way, I will corrupt these people. And he's done a pretty good job, right? But over time, God continues to work with this small group of people. And the, then he's gonna work with Abraham and this family. And then he's gonna work with the Jews. And then all of a sudden, he's gonna save everyone who believes on the name of Jesus Christ. So I want you to see and hear how the cross, the New Testament gospel is intimately connected with the very beginning of Genesis. Question. Was this a worldwide flood or a regional flood? Yes, the scripture implies, but not, not with great certainty. It talks about the whole world was flooded. But the way Jewish writings were done, and it's the way you did it at that time, all the known world was flooded. People tend to think that there's some evidence of a flood in that region. I mean, in Mesopotamia, that whole region, as opposed to the whole world being, being covered. That's one way to read the text. Another way to read the text is simply that the whole world was covered with the flood. So, you're asking me the question, which was it? I'm just gonna say that there are, Jews have believed both of those ideas and Christians have believed both of those ideas and, and, are, and neither of them are saying the Bible's not true. They're just saying, well, in what sense does it mean the whole world? Does it mean the whole inhabited area or did it mean the whole globe? So I don't want you to hear that as, oh, one side thinks the Bible's true, the other side thinks it's not. They're just asking the question of how is it true? They all know that there's a flood. As I pointed out, even people that don't believe in the Bible have to know that there was a flood because of all those stories. So those are two beliefs that Christians and Jews have had about it. And the answer is just, what is this text trying to say? My point is, if you think that God could flood the whole world, there's no problem with that at all. And I have, I have no discomfort with that idea. Uh, I also don't have heartburn if someone says, well, it seems more reasonable to me, and the way I read the text, it was regional. The only big issue here is, is the only thing that would be really wrong is to say, well, science doesn't support a global flood, so I don't believe a global flood. Well, feel free to worship your God of science if you want to. I mean, science just doesn't know everything at this point. So the key here is to be willing to believe that what God said actually happened. It is possible though to sincerely say, I don't know exactly what that means. So both of those points of view are reasonable points of view. Um, what does it mean when it says that Noah was righteous and how did he get that way? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually interesting because the Jews, the Jewish rabbis, the sages, the wise men of the Jews had an interesting little thing. They were, I don't think they liked Noah that well. So, because here's what they said. If you look at the text carefully, it said Noah was righteous in his generation. Well, what was his generation? I just told you how depraved everybody was. And so they said, well, Noah wasn't actually righteous by our standards. He was just better than all the rest of those miserable losers of the time. So one thought amongst the Jews is that he was better than the other guys. But the idea of being righteous and the idea of walking with God carries with it the idea of a heartfelt intent to follow God and to submit yourself to God to the extent that you know what God wants from you. So the question, how did he get that way is, well, how did he know what rules to follow? We don't have the seven Noahide covenant yet. We don't have the Mosaic covenant with 613 laws. So what did he do to be righteous? And the text doesn't say, but you really get this sense as A, he believed that there was a God. 
He believed that God created humanity. He believed that we had all sinned, including Noah himself, and he earnestly longed to want to be right with God. So I think at the very least you could say he was righteous because he pursued God. He was willing to say no to things he knew you know, that God did not want. And so he was seeking God, he was turning toward God. And what about the dinosaurs? Were they on the ark? Yeah, I'm just, I'm gonna have to clarify a lot of things tonight, aren't I? Yeah, it's just you're getting me in a lot. Okay, so here are the two views of the dinosaurs. Is, oh well, there are a lot of views, but I'm gonna give you the two views that Christians generally hold about the dinosaurs. If you look at Genesis one through six, and you are what is called a young earth way of looking at, I don't like these labels, but I'm gonna use them because I think you know what I'm talking about. A young earth way of looking at it would say that the chronology of Genesis one through six is all there was. Remember I told you, nobody ever, God never said, I just told you everything that happened. I mean, he's probably left out tons of stuff that happened. He goes, I'm gonna tell you the important stuff that I want you to know, because I have a purpose here. And so Young Earth says though, no, that's pretty much it. And so the earth is 6,000 years old. And if you add up all the generations, it, it works out to be relatively young earth and God created it. It was not 14 billion years old. God created it in a special act of creation and he created humanity. Now. Where do dinosaurs fit in? Dinosaurs base, I'm really doing this injustice. I'm just giving you a real short answer. Dinosaurs are in here, they're not mentioned. Later in Job, you'll see uh, references to great beasts. Uh, and so people will say, hey, maybe that's a reference to the dinosaurs. But basically the dinosaurs lived and are extinct in a much shorter period of time than scientific excavations would indicate that is the case. So there's a disagreement there with, the scientific record, which to be fair, is not as solid as you think. In other words, don't, don't take that as a slam dunk thing. This is, this is a, a fair, fair point of view. It's contrary to science, but it's uh, as science exists today. But they would basically say this happened in this time frame. It just isn't, doesn't comport with the fossil record. The other big point of view is called an old earth view, and that is still God created the earth, but God chose how he did it, and he did it over a long period of time. He just isn't telling you everything that happens. When he talks about making it in six days, he's not talking about six 24-hour days. He's talking about six eras or epochs, and maybe each one of those was a million years. And they don't, it, it, it's not that they don't believe in God, they're just saying, I just, maybe he did it in this way. Neither of these groups of people disagree that the Bible is true, nor do they disagree that God created it, they just disagree with, well, how did he choose to do it? That's probably the best way to understand it. And that's called an old earth view. In that case, dinosaurs came and went millions of years ago. And, just, and it comports a little better with the fossil record. But I, hopefully people aren't believing old earth because they're, they're trying to reconcile this with science because I guarantee you science will change. The Bible won't. So, you have old earth, young earth views, and dinosaurs are tough to fit into the young earth view. Dinosaurs fit very nicely, Jurassic Park, all that stuff with the old earth view. But both of those views have some difficulties. The only thing I would say is, in order to not have a big fight, is both of those groups typically believe the Bible is true, God created the earth, the question is, how did he choose to do it? Now I realize you may have a strong opinion that one of those views is right and one of those views is wrong, and I don't have any heartburn with that. I suspect one of those views is right and one of those views is wrong. I just wanna say that neither of those is necessarily anti-God. Does that make sense? When I talk to you about evolution, there is a non-Christian way of thinking about evolution. Darwinian evolution is not a biblical idea. It just cannot be reconciled with the Bible. Old earth, young earth, those proponents believe that they are indeed reconciling it with the Bible. So I just am trying to be a little more peacemaker here and say, look, look past the details and see where is the heart here. You know, are people committed to the Bible or are they committed to something else? If we're committed to the Bible, we just keep studying and we'll get there. The issue here is, is a lot of this is indeed conjecture because God has chosen to only tell us so much. 
My point of view on that, just to summarize this, why has God chosen to only tell us so much? God has cho- told us the most important things. What is the most important thing about the flood? Is that sin spirals down and humanity, once we cross the boundary, you can't stop with crossing the boundary once. That we as humans, once we sin, sin becomes easier and it's a slippery slope. We as humanity, once we crossed that boundary, came to do things that are inconceivably evil in history. And God intervenes with Noah because his heart was grieved and he finds a way to take a remnant and restart this and bring humanity to the point where we can be reconciled. You see one of the first big steps on the way to the cross in the story of the flood. And that's why the story, if the story of the flood hadn't been there, your Bible would still be fine, right? I mean, what if chapter Noah doesn't even show up in the Bible and chapter six isn't even there? We go straight on to the Tower of Babel. Would you miss it? No, you wouldn't miss it, but you'd miss an important idea of what God is doing and how much he loves you. In other words, there's a really easy, the easy button for God would be none of us would have ever been born. But he didn't hit the easy button, he took the hard route, just like a parent does. It would be easier to disown your child, and yet you love them and you hang in there and try to restore the relationship. And that's what God has done with us. And we are the beneficiaries of God's grace all the way back in Genesis chapter six. Well next, I wanna talk to you about the Tower of Babel. And that gets us to the first to chapter 11, which is the first great segment of the book of Genesis. And the Tower of Babel sets humanity up for modern times. I'm gonna argue that the people in Genesis 11 are 21st century people, but I'll tell you more about that next week. I'll see you guys later.